From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Today, Georgia Republicans, including Governor Brian Kemp, are stepping up their attacks on what they say President Biden's failed border policies. We'll talk about the border with Insurance Commissioner John King. He's the first Hispanic member to be elected to statewide office in Georgia and is a native of Mexico. I'm Bill Nygut. As Judge Scott McAfee continues sifting through motions in the effort to disqualify Fonnie Willis from prosecuting the Trump election conspiracy case, we'll talk with Georgia attorney Charlie Bailey. Willis's support for Bailey's run for lieutenant governor was found to be a conflict of interest that led to the severing of one target of her case. Plus, the South Carolina Republican presidential primary is just four days away. Polls show Donald Trump with an easy path to a big victory in Nikki Haley's home state. But Nikki Haley says no matter, she'll keep pushing on. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia, setting the stakes in the agenda for Georgia politics. We have an absolutely packed studio today, Bill, and a very special guest, not just Insurance Commissioner John King, but also my 10-year-old daughter, Brooke. Brooke, who uh, is, I have to say, one of my favorite 10-year-olds that I know. I really like you, Brooke. (laughs) Well, Brooke is not just an aspiring physician, but she's also a budding vocal artist and songwriter. And we're going to let her reprise her intro. Patricia, Tia, Bill, and Greg, they put together a show that's meant to be led by Shaney, B, and Natalie, politically Georgia for you and for me. (laughs) Wow, Brooke, Lustine, okay. Well, Brooke, we have another special guest here this morning, Insurance Commissioner John King is in studio. I want to get your your live review of Brooke's uh, intro rap. You know what? Following a great tradition of uh, of entertainers in in Georgia, you know, I mean, (laughs) the Grammy's on the way. Well, Commissioner, uh, we know that being an insurance commissioner uh, isn't exactly as well known as being a governor or being a U.S. senator or, or, or another statewide office. But before we launch him... Let's talk a little bit about yourself and how you rose from working the Atlanta Police Department's beat as a, as a beat cop, right, uh, to the highest ranks of Republican officialdom. You call yourself the Swiss Army knife of politicians. Yes, I, I like to you know, describe myself as, as, as a multi-tool. Um, you know, I started my career. I was born and raised in Mexico, and so that's why I always try to explain my, my accent, which is very uh, – a lot of people scratch their heads, but – my father's from South Georgia, from Berrien County, Nashville, Georgia, as they say, down yonder. The other Nashville. The other Nashville. 
Um, but he joined the Merchant Marine at a very early age, and he went and fought World War II. Retired and went to live in Mexico, I married my mom, and I was born and raised there. And so I, he wanted me to learn how to speak English and brought me to, to Albany, Georgia. And I graduated from high school and I came to Atlanta and went to Georgia State University. And, I, and to pay for college, I joined the Atlanta Police Department. And so my first assignment with the Atlanta Police Department as a, while I was in field training was walking what they call high crime foot patrol on Auburn Avenue. And one of my duties at night was to walk Coretta Scott King to her car. Wow. And if anybody should have had a tough time dealing with a young white cop, it should have been Coretta. And she was incredible. Um, taught me the responsibility of a young police officer, not the chief, not the lieutenant, not the captain, to own the security of that assigned area that he, that he or she has. And so that began my love affair with, with public service and policing. I loved uh, working for the Atlanta Police Department. Uh, I had some incredible opportunities. I worked uh, for some real, you know, incredible, you know, uh, very notorious people. Eldrin Bell was one of my my, my bosses. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so I had an incredible career. Uh, worked uh, intelligence and organized crime. I worked. I was one of the original Red Dog officers uh, when crack cocaine hit the streets of Atlanta. Um, and then I had the opportunity to uh, to join. Uh, to I got offered uh, a position with the Doraville Police Department, where I rose through the ranks and, and ended up my career as a chief of police for 14 years there. But at the same time, I joined the Georgia Army National Guard as a private. Fell in love with the idea of driving the tank, mm. uh, and so I joined the Atlanta, the uh, Do- uh, the National Guard, and went through. From private, and I uh, retired about nine months ago as a major general in the Army. My last assignment was at, Nor- at Northcom in Colorado Springs. And I had a variety of assignments all over the world. Iraq, Afghanistan, Bosnia, Africa, the border, COVID, you name it. And so that gave me a whole list of skill sets uh, that really is, I think, you know, it's I put into benefit to to be able to support Georgia, and, and it's just my passion. And are there any parallels between driving a tank and running for office in a state like Georgia? Very much so. I, I've become a connoisseur of uh, fried fish and barbecue uh, across uh, Georgia and campaigning, and uh, uh, I enjoy getting to meet, to talk to people, because most people have no idea what the insurance commission mm-hmm. does. And so uh, I've been able to apply all these experiences to talk to people and, and the lessons that I learned uh, in uh, Atlanta, walking a footbeat, uh, working East Lake Meadows under some incredible uh, folks that live in those communities. Get, get you know, so I I put all those and apply those to what I do today. John, uh, you and I have known each other for a very long time. I first uh, I think met you when you were an Atlanta uh, a cop. Um, and then I got to know you better when you were at, at the chief of police at Doraville and I was at the Anti-Defamation League where we trained law enforcement officers and how to deal with hate crimes and the like. And and um, I, I want to say, before I ask you my question, that for people who don't know you in your law enforcement career, uh, you were always one of the most highly regarded police officers in certainly North Georgia. I mean, your reputation as chief in Doraville was sterling. Um, and I'm so I'm interested in how you made the transition. You were first appointed 
uh, as uh, insurance commissioner by uh, Governor Kemp. Um, then you became the first Hispanic to win statewide office when you ran for the post and now can say you've been elected to that position. So you, you really fill an important role uh, just as a frontiersman in terms of uh, being a Hispanic elected to statewide office. I don't quite understand where that transition, though, took place. It's uh, strictly by accident. I mean, I believe me, five and a half years ago, I was very happy being a chief of police and being very happy being a, a general officer in our, in our army. Uh, but I got asked to serve. And so the call to service, when Governor Kemp asked me, hey, I need you to come and help rebuild the confidence in this broken agency and get back to the business of of taking care of Georgians. That to me seemed like a typical call that I've gotten over, over the, the majority of my adult life. It's a call to service. And I did not know much about insurance, but now I'll tell you, in the last five and a half years, I've become quite knowledgeable in, in the problems and how to solve the real hard problems that we have in Georgia and how we're making progress. You're uh, uh, Because you were elected as uh, first Hispanic statewide, um, You've been able to serve something of a dual role for the government, for Kemp's administration, certainly doing the work as insurance commissioner, but you've also been active in terms of his uh, positioning on immigration issues. You were with the governor when he went to the Texas border recently. Um, talk to us a little bit. Governor Kemp's been very active in saying he supports Governor Abbott. And Abbott's decision that he is going to put his own National Guard troops in that uh, portion of the border that the Supreme Court said, you got to let the Border Patrol back in here. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. Talk to us a little bit about how you feel about hearing a governor like Kemp say, I'm going to send National Guard's troops to the border. Well, it's a great question because Governor Kemp in this administration has not been the first one that had to deal with problems at the border. I mean, we've had to deal with problems on the southern border for multiple uh, administrations. I mean, I've been deployed to the border multiple times. Uh, President Obama deployed soldiers to the border. President Bush deployed soldiers. to. I mean, I spent time. I was in, under the Trump administration. I was the first uh, commander of major units on the border. And we focus because I was born and raised in Mexico, and so I understand the culture, and I have relationships mm -hmm. with the Mexican military. Our problem set is to secure that border, there's no bumper sticker that is the magic solution. The, the wall is part of that conversation, but it's not the only conversation. Doing economic development on both sides of the border, getting both countries to secure the border is what's going to take. It's, this is a very complex problem. Right now we have absolute chaos. Is, is an ungoverned part of, 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 on the Mexican side, is an ungoverned part. The cartels are running. And so the amount of human tragedy occurring, uh, we call ourselves, you know, we Americans and, and we, we love life. What's going on right now is, is, is horrible. Note, and it, oh, by the way, this current policy, that the administration that, I, that I, don't, I don't agree with. It's destroying not only the border region, but it's destroying our economies. It's also destroying the Mexican economy and the Central American countries' economies because this multitude of people coming through, those regions don't have the resources to take on and support that amount of, of human, you know, humans moving through the, this area. 
So the status quo is is is, is a disaster. And so I I don't I think I, I understand Governor Abbott out of desperation. He has to do so. His job is to protect all Texans, and the fact that that those the current policy is affecting not only economies of blue states, but it's also affecting red states. And so the status quo is not acceptable, and we need to be able to push back. Well, Commissioner, uh, let me ask you this, because there's been a lot of finger pointing from both sides of the political aisle about who's to blame. Do you see this right now, what's happening at the border as a shared responsibility for Democrats and Republicans who both have dropped the ball over the past decades over immigration control? I, I agree. I agree that both sides have used immigration as a political football. I mean, the, the, the Obama administration had a majority of both houses and in the White House. If there would have been an opportunity to get passed by, by the opposition party, it should have been passed in. But, you know, there were other priorities. And this is complex. And, and I don't want to minimize that there's a magic solution that if we just do one thing, it will solve. It, it's going to take a massive amount of 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 serious thoughts. The border wall is one. The economies of Latin American countries, getting companies to invest in jobs to to, and and come up with a solution of where, back in the '60s and '70s, we had a policy where people would come to this country for short periods of time to work. They didn't drag their families. They didn't drag. They didn't cause this human tragedy that's occurring now, because there was predictability. The people, you know, people who we knew who they were would come to this country and then return. We abandoned those kind of conversations. And, and it's, you know, both sides are not willing to, to talk about it. So they're, they're not really serious. So I'll blame both sides. Governor Kemp described this. He's, he's tired of, of Washington failing on this issue. Recently, I was in, in El Salvador attending an insurance commissioner's, uh, you know, meeting down there. And the, and the Latin American commissioners were telling, why do you politicians keep on coming to, to Latin America to look for the root causes of the immigration problem? The root causes are in Washington, D.C. It's your policy that is causing and is destroying our economies. And that was that was an aha moment for me. John, um, when we talk about border security issues with Republicans particularly, frankly, we hear a lot of talking points. Uh, President Biden could deal with this unilaterally. He really doesn't need Congress to approve a, a deal. We, we we know that there is some truth to that. We know that certainly early on, the Biden administration did not address border problems the way that they might have. But but you are have a broader perspective, I think. Um, when Governor Kemp says he blames Washington, what he really has been saying is he blames President Biden. But of course, it's Republicans in the U.S. House who rejected a border security deal that might have given them a good deal of what they had been asking for. How do you square all of that um, when you talk about it being a problem on both sides? It's, I would push back a little bit on, 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 your, on your statement. The president has his, his oath of office requires him to defend and protect this nation. He has the authority, and previous presidents have sent troops to the border. I mean, going all the way back to, my God, you know, Spanish America, you know, the U.S. Army, you know, General Pershing going into, into securing the border, chasing Pancho Villa. So this is not a new thing. And, and I think what Republicans are saying is let's control, let's have an orderly process at the border. Because, they've been, you know, Republicans have been burnt in the past. Ronald Reagan agreed to a border policy and he got burnt because they 
they did not invest in the improvements in, in, in securing the border, but they did all the other parts that the, the opposition party. And, and I think it's, it's uh, you know, I think the Republicans have been burnt on this subject. Should, should, and so that's why they're, they want to get guarantees that there'll be control of the border. Now, clearly, anybody that comes to the border through a, through a point of entry that is asking for asylum, there's a legal process. There's president, you know, there's clear laws. That, that requires us to provide hearings and all, the, all those things. But the whole idea of, of families coming across the Arizona desert and dying in the summer because of that is inhumane. I apologize. I, I interrupted you for a minute. Should Republicans in the U.S. House have approved the border security deal that the Senate uh, was uh, uh, pushing forward? I don't think I, – I, if I would have been a, a congressman, I don't think I would have bought that because it, because of the idea of of the Democratic Party has has uh, broken the trust mm-hmm. when it comes to this topic. There's all kinds of issues that there's – but there was no guarantees. And I think that the, the Republicans clearly said control the border and then we can talk about all these other things. Mm-hmm. Had, the, the bro, the, had the trust not been broken in previous, I think – There'll be more opportunities. But I think there's got to be some trust-building actions by the administration to to get this conversation. Obviously, the conversation needs to take place. Mm -hmm. I I don't disagree at all on this conversation, but it needs to be thoughtful and by serious people. We're here with Insurance Commissioner John King. We're talking about anything but insurance right now. We're not going to ask you about President Zachary Taylor's border policies back in the 1840s. But I do want to ask you, there was a moment at the Capitol the other day where I was watching you being interviewed by a national reporter uh, for a Hispanic media outlet who was shocked that you were Hispanic, that you spoke fluent Spanish, that you were born and raised in Mexico. And it, 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 it begs the question about what role you think you're going to play in 2024 uh, as, as the Latino block of the electorate is increasingly important in states like Georgia that are pivotal battlegrounds. What role do you think you will play to try to energize um, uh, Hispanic voters ahead of the 2024 election? Well, you know, that, that to me, I'm still in shock of the fact that this <laughs> national, you know, I had to provide my bona fides. Like three times. That, was, that I was really born and raised in Mexico. I mean, you can't tell by my accent. You can't even tell by my cowboy boots. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's, it's funny. I never have to make that argument to Georgia-based Hispanic media. They, I've been a, a known currency in this state and throughout the region is, oh, yeah, it's Juan King. I, I'm a known quantity. So mm-hmm. to me, the national media doesn't play as an important part as that those voters in making sure that they realize now they have a voice, that it's okay to speak Spanish at the Capitol. Because in the past, that, uh, that was, I remember one of the first interviews that I did with Governor Kemp uh, doing a hurricane. Mm-hmm. And you reported, wow. And I, I gave my remarks in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so we need to get used to the idea that Spanish is, is spoken in Georgia. And it is part of the, the political discourse uh, because Latinos are, in, are incredibly important. The margins are so tight between both parties that if we don't address the needs and, and, and the thoughts and, and aspirations of Latinos, we're not going to be successful in elections. Now, where do you stand? Because a couple of years ago, Donald Trump supported a primary opponent, a primary challenger to your re-election bid. You have not endorsed Donald Trump yet that I've seen. Are you going to, what role do you think you're going to play? Are you going to back him? Uh, you know, if he's a nominee, absolutely. Because I know what we have today. 
today is not acceptable for, for a future and successful Georgia. And, uh, and, and that's what the process is for. I, I always leery of, 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 of politicians declaring allegiance in, in, in taking away the process of, an, of a, a primary. That's what primaries are for, for the discourse and in, it's passionate and ideas. But then when this, a, a decision is made, then we either get on the bus or you don't. So, I mean, walk, walk our listeners through this because uh, Governor Kemp has taken the same stance. You know, Donald Trump went after him 2022, backed David Perdue. He went after you too. Your race was not as high profile as his, but it was still a very high profile statewide race. You were one of four Republican incumbents who had a Trump back challenger. How do you still reconcile supporting him if he is the nominee? You're not, you know, you're not endorsing him yet, but if he's the nominee, even though he went for your head in 2022. I, I guess I would be upset and be wringing my hands if I was a long-term politician. I started my career as an Atlanta policeman. People many times didn't agree with me. It said some ugly, mean things to me on the streets of Atlanta and East Lake Meadows. They said some pretty bad things. You know what? I'm an optimist. Uh, you know, you have to be an optimist if you have been an Atlanta policeman because the sun will always come out tomorrow and, and tomorrow's a better day. John, I want to ask you a consumer question. I mean, here we have you here as the insurance commissioner, so I really want to ask you about a question that I think affects most of the people who are listening to you either on our podcast or on the radio live this morning. Um, auto insurance rates na- nationwide have gone up uh, 20-plus percent, and Georgia has really been particularly hard hit by increases in auto insurance uh, I know there are a variety of reasons for it, but apparently, I think I'm correct, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong. One of the reasons is there are ways in which insurance companies can raise uh, rates on drivers without having to go through an approval process with the insurance uh, commissioner at, and your office. Tell us about that, how that's impacted all of us who have to pay for auto insurance, and what can we do about it? Well, years ago... A commissioner gave up the authority to review, you know, the rates. Um, and we fought and got that changed last year. But it was a very hard fall mm-hmm. because the insurance industry did not want to give that authority. That's one of the factors. Uh, another factor is the way that people drive in our beautiful city. It, they, I'm not the most considerate. I'm not allowed to you describe the actual word that I wanted to describe. But this is not a very, family radio This station. is a family radio, and, and Greg's daughter is here, so I can't— but uh, also is the the environment of litigation. You know, Georgia is considered a judicial hellhole. For for so everybody, you know, the lawsuits are driving a lot of these losses, and so I have a, more authorities, and we're working on getting some more authorities. That, in, in all fairness, this office lost because of the misconduct of previous commissioners. Yeah. And rightly so. The legislature reacted to that. And, and so now that as we are developing better confidence building actions in our office, the, the legislature is giving more authorities to us. We're now becoming, we're engaged in all kinds of things that, that in previous commissioners would not be allowed to, to do. Health insurance platform that we, you know, with Georgia Access. Uh, is a, you know, so to get back to your question, it's a combination of issues. The technology on vehicles, the number of sensors and computers, it is much more expensive now to, to replace those losses. 
We're now in a place in Georgia that if an insurance company wants to raise rates, they have to come to my office and show us their data, their losses. And I never give an insurance company what they want. We negotiate. And I look at their losses. And I have to keep the balance you know, between making sure that I'm that I respect the consumer because I'm elected. I'm one of few insurance commissioners in the nation. There's only 11 of us are elected. The rest of them are appointed by their governors. And making sure that the companies don't walk away from the state. As you see, California, there's been several states where companies says, we're not going to get any rate increases. We're just going to walk away from the state. And that would be more prejudicial to, to our state. We're here with Insurance Commissioner John King. We promised we'd, let, we'd get a, a couple of insurance questions in. One more before you got to go. Health insurance. Um, we know that Governor Brian Kemp's Pathways medical insurance program has not lived up to expectations yet. Only a few thousand people have signed up for his more, much more limited Medicaid expansion. There is a debate underway about a, a full-scale Medicaid expansion. Where do you stand on that? Do you think the Pathways needs more time, or, or do you support a, a broader expansion? I think Pathways, in all fairness, deserves a little bit more time because if the federal government has thrown every obstacle that they could to delay that implementation. Now, we on the private side, we are, we are uh, we're performing now. I mean, Georgia Access, we're outperforming the federal government three to one. People going to a marketplace, one website, and they're shopping for individual health coverage. And so we're capturing a lot of the people that are being rolled off and, and offering them you know, options for health care. And so we are performing the federal government three to one. So it's unprecedented the, uh, the amount of uh, success we've been having. Why? Because we've gone to local communities. We have an individual message for Dalton, for Gainesville, for Atlanta, for Southeast Atlanta. And we're providing those options. And, and, it's, and it's not one method of communications that's been in Spanish-speaking radio, regular radio, internet, Facebook, all the social media, you know. And so we're going and tailoring that message across Georgia. And that's, I think, one of the keys to our success. Well, Commissioner John King, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. It was great to have you here, John. Thank you. When we come back, we'll be joined by Charlie Bailey, who lost the race for Lieutenant Governor Republican Burt Jones in 2022. Is now one of Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis's biggest allies. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We've got a great offer for Politically Georgia listeners. And listen close, because this is the South's biggest deal. For a limited time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for just $1.99 per week. It's less than $2 for life. As long as you'll keep your subscription, that's our sports and politics coverage, breaking news, in-depth investigations, food and dining, and more from AJC.com every day for life. You'll also unlock access to our app, exclusive films and events, newsletters. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com start. That's AJC.com start. A great deal for a greater Atlanta. This is for new subscribers only. I'm here with Bill Nygut in studio, and we're now joined by Charlie Bailey, the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor, also a former prosecutor and defense attorney. 
How you doing, Charlie? I'm good, Greg. How are you? I'm great. So let's get right into it because you were one of Fonnie Willis's closest allies for years. Some, your wife was on her staff and you remain very good friends. And something I learned from reading the book, Find Me the Votes, that just came out a couple weeks ago, if, 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 if I'm not mistaken, you were one of the people urging Fonnie Willis to run against her political mentor, Paul Howard, a couple years ago, back in 2020. So you guys go way back. Yeah, and we go back further than that. Um, I was under her in the trial division at the DA's office when we both worked for Paul and um, uh, before I went to the gang unit. So she was my boss, I don't know, 10 years ago, something like that. Um, and we got to be good friends. And, of course, I have a tremendous amount of respect for her. Well, her testimony, of course, last week got sharp political reaction. Republicans say she irreparably damaged her credibility. Many Democrats said she didn't do it, that she did enough to quell doubts about the case, even if they had some concerns with some of her testimony. And others, of course, just given her unequivocal support. It's up to a judge, but there's an element of politics involved here as well. Give us your reaction to that testimony. Well, let me say three things. First, uh, I feel like I'm kind of in the upside down world, you know, <laughs> like I'm on a long, strange trip, uh, as, as Bobby Weir might say. Uh, let's take a step back. We got Fonnie Willis here, career prosecutor, um, one of the best, if not the best prosecutors in the most challenging DA's office in the southeast. Someone hired by Republicans at the JQC to prosecute judges in the past. Uh, one of the most talented trial lawyers I've ever been around, and I work for Governor Roy Barnes, and I am currently at the law firm of Cook & Connolly, founded by Bobby Lee Cook, otherwise known as Matlock to folks. <laughs> I know something about talented trial lawyers. So we got someone of that kind of integrity on one side. On the other side, we got Donald Trump. Now, this man is an adjudicated sexual assaulter, an adjudicated business fraud, and we're supposed to treat seriously whatever he passes judgment on to 50-something-year-old single adults having a consensual relationship. So I think that's quite odd, first off. Secondly, in this hearing, you know, these people made claims through their defense attorneys uh, that essentially would mean Fonnie Willis would be one of the most corrupt DAs in the history of the country. And they got no evidence, absolutely none, in this two-day hearing. And the third thing I'll say is this. People throw around, well, improper, 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 because – uh, somebody um, made a legal filing and put a bar number under it doesn't mean it's, it's any more worthwhile. What are we talking about here? I've got two buddies I can say right off the top of my head that dated their then bosses and are now married to those people. I mean, we just had an op-ed from the former Senator Kelly Leffler. Is she married to her former boss? I mean... We talk about we how many dive into that too for sure. How many people in the press do y'all know that are married to folks that they dated? Don't even get me started on the General Assembly and the gall that they have. I assume the very first thing this cockamamie committee is going to do is put every member of the General Assembly under oath so they can testify they never had a relationship with any lobbyist, with any state contractor, or with any state employee because they, they want to get to the bottom of this. And right, this right? is a committee you're mentioning, which is which has the power, a Senate committee, the power to subpoena investigate Funny Willis. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie, uh, first of all, anybody who can start a conversation by quoting the Grateful Dead is okay by <laughs> me. What a long, strange trip it's been. Uh, but let's go back in time. Um, 
Fannie Willis was first accused of a conflict of interest, of course, because she supported your campaign for lieutenant governor. This is when you were in the primary uh, fight. This wasn't in the general election campaign. Some people see a distinction there. But because Burt Jones at the time was a target of her Trump election conspiracy investigation, Judge Robert McBurney ruled that uh, he should be removed from the case uh, because he saw that as a conflict and said to her, as you know, what were you thinking about going out and having a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey? So that was the first time that people perhaps in a very minor way said, hmm, what's happening with Fonnie Willis here? This most recent uh motion to dismiss her because of this affair, um, much uh, bigger, much um, uh, getting much more attention. How do you put it in the context of what happened when you uh, were uh, considered one of the reasons that she had to dismiss one of the defendants? Well, the only similarity I see is in the people that bring in it. I mean, um, again, here you got Donald Trump, and I've already gone into that, and everyone is well aware. And then on the other side, you got Burt Jones. The most he knows about crime is being under investigation for crimes. Here's the thing. I know Judge Bernie, Judge McBurney. He's a good judge. I've tried cases in front of him. He got that wrong. I don't want to relitigate all that. I will just say he drew a distinction between saying it was okay for her to give me give my campaign Thirty five hundred or four thousand dollars. It was okay for her to endorse me. Those weren't conflicts, but being on a fundraiser was. I don't really understand the difference. I don't think a lot of your listeners probably understand the difference. But he made his decision, and 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 I respect the rule of law, and that's the judge's decision, and move on. Um, I don't see any connection between the two. Um, you know, like I said, defense attorneys can file whatever they want to file, and just because you got a a name underneath it with a bar number doesn't mean that it should be treated with any more respect than just some joker on the corner, you know, hollering. And we saw that here because a lot of the claims that they made were, were uh, should we say, disabused in court. Uh, they were just flat out false. Um, so, you know, I don't really see any connection between the two except for the fact that Folks want to avoid accountability for their own actions, and that is not new. To, let, let me ask you another question about all this. To what extent do you believe that this effort to disqualify Fonnie Willis, and especially the way in which the defense attorneys uh, uh, questioned her in her testimony, to what extent do you think there is an element of this about Fonnie Willis being a woman? I think a lot of it has to do with that. I mean, frankly, I think if it was a white man from Harris County like me that talks the way I do, I don't know that it would have been treated the same way. And I use as evidence for that how many times we had discussions of all the governors, all the mayors, all the congressmen, all the senators, and the extramarital affairs they had. And finally, wasn't even having an extramarital affair. So I do think it's a double standard. I also I think it has to do with, with race. I also think it has to do with a single woman. I think a lot of folks are very uncomfortable seeing a single woman have a position of power. And I think Donald Trump is probably, you know, number one, exhibit A, exhibit one, you know, over and over of, of that kind of uh, frame of mind. Hmm. We're here with Charlie Bailey, Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor in 2022 and a close friend of Fonnie Willis. So, Charlie, I'm curious 
on your thoughts on Fannie Willis's future. She faces an election battle in November. You just mentioned earlier, former Senator Kelly Leffler penned an op-ed in the AJC just this week, basically begging a Republican to run against Fannie Willis. Are you concerned that if a Republican runs, we still don't know yet, um, but I'm frankly expecting one to, that this case could, this election could sort of turn into a proxy battle over how she's handling the election interference case? I'm not concerned about any Republican running against Fonnie in November under any circumstances <laughs> because, you know, I, I, because I've, I've got a functioning brainstem and I know how politics work. So, you know, <laughs> the, the former senator can, can recruit to her heart's content. It's not going to matter. Fonnie Willis will be a reelected district attorney regardless of who wins. Or, so you're not concerned a Republican opponent. Are you, yeah. are you, does that extend also to a potential Democratic primary challenger? We've heard rumor that Paul Howard, the six-term DA who was Fonnie Willis's mentor, uh, could make a comeback bid. No, I'm not worried about a primary challenge either. Uh, again, as I said to you the other day, uh, any, for, any person that thinks that uh, Fonnie Willis um, is in danger by any primary doesn't understand the first thing about the Democratic electorate. Um, it's, I think it would be foolish for someone to spend a lot of time and a lot of other people's money um, uh, tilt into that windmill. Charlie, um, th- most of the legal experts who have looked at these challenges to Fonnie Willis, um, based on her relationship with Nathan Wade, have said they really don't have anything to do with the charges brought against Donald Trump and his many co-defendants. Um, but they do have an impact, perhaps, and this is a question for you, on how the public and how a potential jury may see Fonnie Willis if she prosecutes this case moving forward. What's your sense of that? Has she, if not crossed a legal line, has she, there, there are people like Norm Eisen who now say she probably, whether Judge McAfee says she's fine to continue the case, it might be best for her to step down personally because it may create a bad impression for a jury. And I don't know that I'll stand corrected. I don't know that Norm has said that. Yeah, um, I think he has. Actually. He said Nathan Wade. Nathan Wade. Oh, Nathan Wade. I apologize. No, no. Okay. I apologize. Um, so uh, talking about a Fulton County jury, and I've tried a lot of cases of Fulton right. County juries. All that jury, all this other stuff, and I know this is very important, and I respect what y'all do, and I respect all the TV coverage and everything, you know, and the press. That being um, said. That being said, none of this really, none of this really matters. The only thing that's going to matter to that jury is the evidence in that courtroom. And the law is, is given to them by the judge. And so the only way any of this will come into, a play, come into play with that jury will be if Mr. Sadow or Ms. Merchant or Mr. Gillen or some of these other attorneys want to make an argument to that jury that Fonnie Willis brought this case against Donald Trump and David Schaefer and the rest of these jokers, not because of the evidence that they uncovered and the actions that they took, not because of that, but because she couldn't afford her own trip to Aruba and had to hire, uh, a, a, hire, had to hire someone that she could then pay that then could pay for the trip. You understand? That's the mm-hmm. argument that they're making. Right. And so they would have to say, don't believe your lying eyes, what's in front of you and what I did. Believe this crazy theory that I'm coming up with. And if Mr. Sadow wants to make that or Ms. Merchant or any of the other want to make that argument yep. to a jury, 
have at it. I don't think it's going to be a very persuasive argument. Um, I'm glad you corrected me about Norm Eisen, but I want to add to that. In fact, it was uh, Richard Painter who has worked with Norm Eisen on, on analyzing uh, this whole mess that's going on in Fulton County right now. And he, in a piece in The Atlantic, is the one who said, Fonnie Willis really ought to step aside. I'm not asking you to continue commenting on that. I just want to make sure I sure. clarify the mistake I made to begin with. No, and I'll say just real briefly on mm-hmm. Mr. Painter uh, in, in that point, you know, uh, he made a big mistake in his analysis because he said, well, she could step aside and the office could continue. And I think if he was disabused of that um, mistake, he might not have the same opinion. I haven't talked to him. I don't know. But that's not the way the law works. So that goes into my next question, Charlie. Um, Bill mentioned earlier the 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 ruling by Judge McBurney that disqualified Fannie Willis and her office from investigating uh, the Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones aspect of this. They threw it into the arms of the prosecuting attorney counsel of Georgia, which 18 months later has still not made a decision on even appointing a prosecutor to look into the Burt Jones decision. If this case were to be disqualified, it would also go into the PAC, the prosecuting attorney's counsel of Georgia as well. Uh, and, and their purview. Are you disappointed 18 months into this that we haven't had any decision from the prosecuting attorney counsel of Georgia into Burt Jones? And do you have faith in them if, if this is, if this case does end up winding up in their, in their, uh, in their jurisdiction that they could, appoint a prosecutor to, to move it forward. Well, I take uh, Pete, Pete Scandalakis at his word. Um, I, I don't know why it's taken 18 months. It seems a bit long. There's only so many DAs in the state. You know, you probably call him a couple afternoons. Um, but I take him at his word that he hadn't been able to find somebody. And he's also said in, in publicly that he may have to do it himself. Um, so probably should just get on and do it then <laughs> uh, but but i take him at his word that he's looking and and we'll make a decision but but charlie i think that's why roy barnes testimony last week was particularly interesting um because we know um one of the reasons he was called is to make the point that Fonnie willis had in fact looked for other people besides nathan wade to be the special prosecutor and barnes said look why do I want to do this to myself and my family, the security issues there? I've got mouths to feed in my law firm. So the notion that other district attorneys may not be enthusiastic about jumping on this case isn't so hard to imagine, is it? No, it's not so hard to imagine. Um, And there may be political reasons some don't want to do it uh, as well. Sure. Um, My only... Criticism would be you can find you can find that answer, meaning who can take it pretty quickly in a couple mm-hmm. afternoons. So if if you can't find somebody, then you got to do it. You know, I mean, that's just the only other way. And so I, I just I, my only criticism was let's get to doing it. Mm-hmm. And Pete's I mean, he's got a, a very good reputation. He's a he's a career prosecutor. He knows what he's doing. Um, and, I, and I think he'll do his job. I think part of th- those who watched those two days of hearings, part of the, the experience they had was seeing in raw emotion. Not just former Governor Roy Barnes talk about, very frankly, you know, look, he got he got an anti-Semitic militia member who was at his door. Um, you know, he said he, he'd been guarded for four years, didn't want to do that anymore. But also, of course, hearing from Fannie Willis, you know, yeah. about her loneliness, about her personal relationships, about the security threats, hearing from her father about the same thing. You're part of Fannie Willis's inner circle. I mean, how how is... How is she holding up right now? It's a tough time. Um, it's not the toughest time she's been through, 
Um, but you can only imagine being lied about on, on not even nationally around the world. Um, and being called everything but a child of God is, is a, uh, it wears on you. But I'll say, and you've already brought it up, and she testified as much, and her father did as well. This isn't even the, this isn't the hardest thing she's been through in her life. It's not even the hardest thing she's been through in this case. Um, the threats, I don't even have words. I don't even have words for them. They're the most awful things you can imagine that you would not wish on anyone. Which also brings into stark contrast how ridiculous this argument is that a person would go through all this because she couldn't afford a trip to Aruba or she couldn't afford a trip to Napa. It's absolute. It's I can't decide if it's more offensive or more idiotic. Um, Charlie, because you're so close to her, you may not be able to render a particularly objective opinion. Do you think that Judge McAfee does have any reason at all for taking this case away from Fonnie Willis and the Fulton County DA's office? Well, I am close with her, but I'm also an attorney. Yes. And, I, and I've been a prosecutor, um, and, I, and I know Judge McAfee. You mm-hmm. know, we were both uh, under Fonnie in the trial division, and, uh, and, and Scott's a good lawyer, um, and, he understands, and he understands the law. The truth is there simply isn't any grounds to say there is a conflict. It is not a conflict for two people to have a consensual relationship on the same side of the case. The Georgia courts, the Supreme Court, has said it's not even a conflict for two folks having a consensual relationship on opposite sides of a case. And this whole idea of it, there being some sort of kickback scheme, there's no evidence for it. We got we got another article, was it this morning from CNN? Some person that was out at working at a winery out mm-hmm. in Napa. Yeah. <laughs> reached yeah. out to CNN and said, I remember her bringing out, because I was so shocked by it because nobody pays in cash. Yeah. I remember bringing out a lot of cash it's to pay for cash, all this. Yeah. Yeah. So just, there, there isn't any evidence to support the outlandish claims they've made. And so there is no legal basis, factual basis at all, uh, to disqualify um, the district attorney in this case. we got to take a quick break. Charlie Bailey, thank you so much for joining us. Sure thing. Let's get to our final break. When we come back, Nikki Haley's announcement of a slate of Georgia leaders backing her campaign signals she plans to stay in the race until our March 12th primary. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. I'm here in studio with Bill Nygut. Bill, we had two great guests in studio. I love yeah, having yeah. guests come in studio. It's so much more fun. To I absolutely that. agree. So, Bill, I'm going to um, South Carolina later on this week. I'll be there Wednesday on. 
There's going to be a big announcement from Nikki Haley later today. No, we do not expect her to get out of the race. She is not going to drop out of the race uh, in her home state this close to the primary. But she will give an update on where she stands in her efforts to keep plugging away at Donald Trump. The outlook, though, Bill, is dim. I want to read you the latest poll out this morning from USA Today. It shows Donald Trump leading Nikki Haley in her home state by nearly a two-to-one margin. He's at 63% to her 35%. Yeah, and in fact, I was just looking at the 538 average of all of the South Carolina polls. They've got Trump at at 65%. uh, So the outlook is fairly dim for Nikki Haley. But we, we talked about this a little bit on the show yesterday. And one of the things that I think is particularly interesting is, yes, of course, Nikki Haley has got to win somewhere. But as long as people keep contributing to her campaign, as long as she's well-funded, I don't see any reason why she has to uh, get out of the race, say, before our March 12th primary. And you're right. She's raised millions of dollars uh, since her New Hampshire defeat. She's still very well-funded. And in Georgia alone, the list of supporters Mm. that was rolled out in Georgia, it didn't have too many big-name political figures. But it had a lot of really wealthy business. That's exactly members. right. It had moneyed people. Um, you know, some of the uh, big names were fairly big names were there. But um, what's going to be fascinating to watch, Greg, and you certainly know this, is South Carolina primaries are open primaries. Turnout for the Democratic primary, which already took place a couple weeks ago, was very low. So. Is it possible, possible that there are going to be Democrats who want to cross over and uh, show Donald Trump that uh, they don't like him? Uh, I, I guess it's possible. Will independents do that? We, we really don't know about how that might turn out. Uh, but that seems to me to be the only hope Nikki Haley has of keeping the gap closer than what the polls show right now, yes? Yeah, and of course in Georgia too, where polls are yep. open here. Very, very light turnout in the first day, which is also a, a holiday for many people. Um, but about 16,000 or so people voted early in Georgia on Monday. But same same aspect, you can go and you know, there's no party declaration, so you can vote in a Republican or a Democratic primary. Um, you know, the interesting thing about that bill, the same poll I just mentioned from USA Today, also look deeper into the uh, the ideologies of voters. 59% of respondents who said they were liberal or moderate said they'd vote for Nikki Haley. 38% of respondents of those respondents said they vote for Trump. So clearly moderates, not a shock here, moderates, liberals are more a- aligned with Nikki Haley than Donald Trump. So yeah, look, it's the same thing, the same scenario she faced in New Hampshire, where there's a far more moderate electorate. She thought New Hampshire was the best chance she had uh, to kind of slow Donald Trump's momentum. But South Carolina, their Republican electorate is far more conservative. It's a lot, there, there, there are some moderate voters in there, but it's a lot harder to, to cobble together a coalition using moderate and swing voters in a place like South Carolina where there's far fewer of them. Yes, and to argue against my own point, the Democrats could, who if they didn't vote in their primary, come over and vote for Nikki Haley uh, uh, this Saturday. Uh, the argument against that is why would they want to try to help someone who the national polls show may have an even better chance of beating Joe Biden than Donald Trump. Well, let's go over that Georgia list a little closer. We have State Representative Deborah Silcox, Scott Hilton. They're both suburban uh, in swingier districts and more vulnerable districts. Sandy Springs Mayor Rusty Paul, mm-hmm. Eric Tannenblatt, the GOP fundraiser, 
uh, former Georgia Supreme Court Chief Justice David Namias, Watkinsville Mayor Brian Broderick, and then a lot of really wealthy donors. And a couple of them are Steve Selig, the, the developer who we both know really well, and Atlanta Hawks owner Tony Ressler. Yeah. So that's, there's, there's money there. So, Greg, what's your sense of how long she is willing to stay in this thing? Let, let, let's say the, the polls from that you've cited, I've cited the average, let's say they're correct, that Trump has got 60-plus percent of the vote. What's your sense of why Nikki Haley, I, I get she'll have money, but at a certain point, why does she stay in this race? That's the key question, right? If you can't win in your own home state, if you've lost New Hampshire, if you've had back-to-back-to-back defeats in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and then your own home state, and all the polls are looking awful for you going ahead, including here in Georgia, where Donald Trump still is around 60% of most of the polls we've seen. Where's her avenue? You know, can she win anywhere? And how do you wrest control of Republican Party from Donald Trump if you can't beat Donald Trump in any of those states? I thought it was fascinating. Fascinating may be the wrong word. Watching Tim Scott operate in all of this, South Carolina senator, first appointed by Nikki Haley when she was governor, who uh, has been in the past as a candidate for president critical of Donald Trump, now is firmly in his camp, uh, parrots all of Trump's talking points, made the rounds of the Sunday shows. And I've got to say, it was a little bit discomforting to watch a guy who's always been thought of as this positive force, this upbeat, sunny uh, campaigner, uh, being so willing to essentially bow down to Donald Trump. He's one of the people who's going to help turn out conservatives uh, for Donald Trump on Saturday. Yeah, not just in South Carolina, but beyond. And yeah. is obviously, of course, jockeying to be his vice president. And also wouldn't say whether or not he would have confirmed uh, Joe Biden's victory in 2020 or 2021, I should say, if he were the vice president then. Bill, we are coming to a close of the show, but we do always want to remind our listeners, if they have a question, they'd love us to answer here on Politically Georgia, they can call the Politically Georgia call-in hotline anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the show, one of our favorite segments, the Friday Listener Mailbag. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Yeah, just don't make them too hard. Yeah, make them, make them easy. We, we don't read them before, so we are, we are really right. going in blind on this. Well, that is all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WAB in Atlanta, or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app, and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Wednesday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny one film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. 
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.